This is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. You are listening to our bi-weekly podcast about land, water, culture, and conservation in northern New Mexico. This is Jim O'Donnell with the Taos Land Trust. I am back after a couple weeks out of the country and back to bring you interviews with uh, folks here in the Southwest about issues facing our community, be it um, conservation, wildlife, water, land, and culture. This morning, we're going to be talking with Dan Flores. He's a writer and former professor. He was born and raised in Louisiana, but he's been living out here in the West, Texas, Montana, and now he lives in the Santa Fe area. He's been living out in the West for about 35 years. He spent most of his university career at the University of Montana in Missoula as a professor of the history of American West. For people who've been listening in over the past couple months, you know this is something I'm particularly interested in. Dan's writing career has so far produced 10 books of creative nonfiction and historical books about places in the American West, from the Llano Escutado and the near Southwest to the Rocky Mountains and the Great Plains. He's also written books on the artists and photographers of the Northern Rocky Mountains. In 2016, Dan Flores published American Serengeti and the New York Times bestseller Coyote America. His focus has been on nature writing and the biographies of animals like bison, wolves, wild horses, and especially the epic story of North America's fascinating and now most widespread small wolf, the coyote, which is the subject of what we're going to be talking about today. Dan's books and articles have been honored by the Penn American Literary Awards, the Western Writers of America, Western History Association, the Western Heritage Center, and a slew of other notable organizations who have acknowledged the contribution that he's made towards history of the American West. So, Dan, are you there? I am here, Jim, yes. Yeah, thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. How are you doing? My pleasure. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to, to dive right in by telling you a, a little story about a coyote. I love coyote stories. Tell me. I knew you would. So, a couple <laughs> of years ago, um, I had a house north of Taos in, a, in the village of Arroyo Hondo, and my son, who was about one year old at the time, it was a, a sunny, really warm spring morning, and we were outside, and I had this big pile of dirt for one of my many projects, and my son was standing in the pile of dirt in his diaper playing, and out of the sagebrush, came this massive coyote just very moving very slowly walking very deliberately walked up to my son uh, who was standing there and started sniffing at him and I was a few feet away drinking my coffee and the coyote didn't seem to mind me and he just was checking out my son and my first thought was wow this is really cool we're we're getting this uh, interaction with uh, right up close with with the environment and then my second thought was oh my God, that's a coyote and he's about to eat my kid. So I started uh, screaming at him and yelling at the coyote to, to take off and he, he wasn't too concerned. He just kind of loped off very slowly. And, uh, and then my son was really mad because he I had chased off his, his new coyote friend. So oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I didn't have anything to worry about with, with that coyote, did I? Well, you probably didn't. I mean, there there is one of famous instance back in the early 1980s in LA when a coyote uh, did uh, actually injure and, and kill a three-year-old uh, that had wandered out into the driveway of a suburban street. But that's a really rare thing. I mean, you know, in all the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of encounters that humans have had with coyotes over the centuries, we just hardly have uh, any stories that 
indicate that coyotes have been aggressive towards humans. I mean, there, there are a couple of others. There was a young woman in Canada who was about 20 years old who was killed by a pack of animals that some people think are probably were hybrid coyotes with a good dog admixture, which probably made them not afraid of people. But no, you, I think your, your particular story uh, in a lot of ways is a, a common one and a pretty charming one because, I mean, their coyotes have always been intrigued by us. That's why they hang out around us. Ever since we've been in North America, uh, coyotes have been sort of our constant companions. They, unlike wolves, they never really felt as if they needed to be domesticated to get the goodie out of being around us. So uh, they do that, and that's one of the reasons they're probably the most commonly sighted large mammal in North America these days. And what is it that distinguishes the coyote from the wolf? Well, they come out of the same evolutionary lineage. Uh, the canids, like horses and camels, are one of the groups of animals that evolved in North America. Many of our North American animals are actually uh, Asian migrants. They came across the Bering Land Bridge and ended up in North America, but they came originally from Asia. But the canids, the camels, and the horses are all specific to North America. The pronghorns are too. Those are some of our native creatures. And the coyote and the wolf both come out of this uh, uh, the evolutionary origins of the candidate family, which goes back 5.3 million years, we think here in the Southwest. And while many of these canids ended up spreading around the world, wolves ended up crossing the Bering Land Bridge to Asia and to Europe, and in fact evolved in the old world for about two and a half million years before gray wolves actually returned to North America about 30,000 years ago. Coyotes were one of the animals that never left. I mean, a very similar creature about a million years ago that we now call the golden jackal, which was closely related, still is closely related to coyotes, crossed the, probably the Bering Land Bridge, uh, may have crossed the European connection, but it ended up in Africa and uh, in the very uh, sort of uh, southern parts of the Middle Eastern region. But coyotes never did leave North America, so they've been here, they evolved into their present form, Canis latrans, about 800,000 years ago, and have been here all along. So they've been, uh, as I say in my book, they've been howling that original national anthem in North America for nearly a million years now. Yeah, that's that is fascinating. Something that goes back that far, that depth in our in our ecological history. We're talking with uh, Dan Flores. He's the author of Coyote America and The American Serengeti, two fascinating books that I encourage folks to pick up. They're available online, and you can probably order them through your local bookseller if you don't want to order online. This is Jim O'Donnell, and this is the Taos Land Trust Radio Hour. Given the depth of history of the coyote in North America, um, and then the subsequent appearance of humans in North America, the, the original Native Americans that were here, how did that relationship evolve between, uh, I, I know it's culturally specific, every culture had their, their different relation to, to wildlife and to the landscape based on where they were and what their traditions were, but is there a way to generalize the relationship between Native Americans and coyotes? Well, we know, for instance, that uh, about uh, 35 different Western tribes ended up with 
with coyote stories, and in most instances with coyote as uh, a kind of uh, a deity or semi-deity figure in some of the tribal uh, versions. Coyote is sort of the right-hand man of the ultimate creator who comes to Earth to organize North America uh, in terms of topography, of the way the rivers flow of where particular tribal people end up. And so he, he becomes, I mean, he's basically a Paleolithic god, a, a, a god from 10,000 years ago. And we don't have very many of those that have survived around the world, but Coyote is one of them. And I, I speculate in the book that probably the reason that Native people in the West and, and uh, these Coyote tales originally were specifically confined to the West because that's where the Coyote ranged. But I think the reason they, they selected out of all the creatures and that were available to them in North America, the coyote is this particular kind of deity or avatar, human stand-in in the natural world kind of figure, is because uh, Native people arrived here early enough to have witnessed the Pleistocene extinctions. They saw mammoths and mastodons and saber-toothed cats and uh, immense herds of horses and camels, and all these animals vanish from North America, but they observed that there was this creature that was right in the mix that was a survivor of these extinctions. And I think that's probably why they they selected the coyote as this, this distinctive figure in their stories. And so the result of that is that the coyote is the primary literary figure in the oldest literature known in North American history. I mean, he is a, he is a kind of a, a principal character in a way that I don't think very many people actually understand. Well, let's let's dive into that a little bit more because I think that's super fascinating. Um, but to back up just a little bit, one of the things you're you're saying is that is that with the this massive extinction that happened, what about about nineteen twenty thousand years ago or 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 fifteen thousand years ago, uh, the Pleistocene extinction. Um, and correct me on those dates if I'm if I'm a little bit off. Um, the, the 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 coyote was a survivor of that, and the early humans that were here in in North America saw that the coyote could survive that that massive change. Yes, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the extinctions. I mean, we think probably people got here. This was the last continent that humans colonized as they spread out of Africa around the world. We think people got to North America uh, probably about 15,000 years ago. I mean, it's sort of a rough figure. Uh, but they arrived sort of at the onset of the Pleistocene extinctions. The, the extinctions were at their high point between about 15,000 years and about 10,000 years ago. And so they witness all these animals disappearing, uh, but as I mentioned, the coyote is one that survives, and I think it's that it's the survival, the ability to survive what appeared to be obviously an earth-shaping event, uh, this great extinction scenario. It's the ability to survive that, and also probably that people observe that coyotes seem to survive largely because of their intelligence. and. I mean, that was a good animal to identify with as, as human beings. Survival by intelligence is something that we've had to call on many times in our, our own evolutionary past, and of course we're having to call on it right now, today. And so it's something that resonated for, for people who observed this. And so what they did was they created this literary figure 
probably at least many thousands of coyote tales associated with, as, as I said, nearly three dozen different groups that portray him as this central character who, because many of us, especially in the West, know about these stories, we refer to Coyote as a trickster. As I read these stories that I was working on the book and working particularly on the chapter I call Old Man America, which is about Coyote as a, an Indian deity, I began to realize that we were kind of, we're kind of missing the point about these stories because it's really not the trick that's important. It's why the trick works. And the reason the trick works gets us at what these stories are really about. The trick works because of the frailties of human nature, because of the things that we bring to the game that make us susceptible to making wrong decisions and doing stupid things in the world. And so that's really kind of what the stories are all about. There certainly some of them are about tricks, but as I said, the tricks work because we tend to be selfish, we tend to be narcissistic, we tend to be lustful, we tend to be jealous, and that's the kind of thing that these stories call on. They call on this kind of marvelous expose of human nature, and that's why they survived for thousands and thousands of years. Coyote turns out to be this wonderful kind of philosopher of who human beings are. Right, and, and the coyote uh, uh, exposes human frailties and, and makes them obvious to the world. He does, and he often does that by channeling them himself. And so the stories end up being really funny. I mean, they were many of them, of course, were told during the winter month. They were told orally, and I've often, you know, sort of imagined in, in my own mind that there were native storytellers who possessed the kind of comic wit of a Mark Twain right. who were able to tell these stories with coyotes sort of personifying all of the traits that make humans be, human beings so interesting and also so liable to commit failure. And so the stories were really funny and hilarious. I mean, and, and you read some of them now. I mean, I, I recreated and told in my own prose four of these stories. I mean, I was confronted with hundreds of them, and I picked four that I thought sort of represented the range of what these stories were all about to tell in the book. One is uh, about, the last one I tell is, Why Coyote Brought Death to the world and why we can't come back from death. Uh, but the other stories tend to be focused more closely on uh, this expose of human nature. And I mean, that's why they were so successful. And that's why really when folklorists began to collect them in the late 19th century from native tribes who still remembered them, and of course, uh, the folklorists transcribed them uh, into literature. And so they sort of in a way, these coyote stories became the beginning of a countercultural rediscovery of coyote as a Native American figure. And that happened really in the 1950s and 1960s out on the West Coast uh, with some of the great uh, poets and writers of the West Coast in those days, Gary Snyder probably being a primary one. Right, that's the one that came immediately to mind. This is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. And I'm speaking with author and historian Dan Flores, the author of Coyote America and the American Serengeti. The reason I wanted to talk about coyotes today is because, Dan, one of the things the Talos Land Trust is doing um, 
Uh, you know, we protect land all over uh, the northern part of the state through conservation easements, private land. Things that we do is uh, we, we've purchased a 20-acre old farm in the center of Taos that has the Rio Fernando running through it. And we're currently restoring the Rio Fernando and restoring this old farm that was that was fairly heavily damaged and full of invasive species. And um, one of the things that we've noticed through our work over the past two years is that we've constantly got coyotes moving up and down the Rio Fernando right here in the center of town. You know, as we, I think as we, as we change the habitat and as we do the restoration work, we uh, will probably see more, um, more of these animals moving through. Well, I think you will. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the reasons coyotes have become sort of legendary figures in 21st century America is because they've accomplished what no other large canid, large wolf-like canid has managed to do. They've not only spread out of the American West across the entire United States in the last hundred years or so, uh, they're now in every single state. They colonized their last state of the Continental 48, Delaware, in 2010. They're in every state in the Union except for Hawaii. But one of the things they've also done is that they've moved into cities. And so coyotes have been colonizing places like Denver and Chicago and more recently New York City over the last three decades or so. And it's sort of brought them into view of millions of Americans who uh, had no idea what a coyote was, had never really seen one, maybe seen them on television. But suddenly coyotes are trotting down the streets of suburbs in Chicago. And so the animals are, they've long, as I mentioned earlier, they've long kind of closely associated with us. They uh, have found their bones in Chaco Canyon, for example, in archaeological sites there. We know that from the historical record that they hung out around Indian camps and even among pioneer uh, immigrant camps going across the Great Plains and across the West. Coyotes were always hanging around camps. And once we ended up with dog laws in cities. So we started taking all these feral and wild dogs that were in cities and putting them in dog pounds and establishing leash laws. And in other words, got the coyotes' major competitor in town put away. That opened up American cities for coyotes to move in. So just like in Taos, as you're describing, where coyotes are trotting right through the middle of town, they're doing that in cities uh, large and small all over the United States these days. Right, and so it's extremely important that we we talk continuously, I think, about these animals because they are moving into our our cities. Of course, we push them out in the first place by building our cities, but they're coming back and we're encountering them every day. Talking about them and knowing about them and their history uh, will, I hope, alleviate some of the anxiety that some people uh, fear around uh, have around coyotes. Well, I mean, indeed, one of the reasons uh, I wrote Coyote America. I mean, I was fascinated with the animals and have been fascinated with them really since I was 12, 13, 14 years old, growing up in Louisiana. And they began showing up in Louisiana, and I began seeing coyotes in the bayous and swamps of Louisiana. And I thought, you know, that this was a really remarkable thing. I mean, it was like rounding a corner on Bourbon Street and encountering a moose. Um, so <laughs> I've been fascinated with them for a long time uh, and have wanted to do a book uh, on them for a long time. But really, one of the primary reasons I wrote Coyote America is because of this phenomenon of their spread and 
having them be visible to millions of people who have never seen them before. And I knew that people wouldn't know the first thing about them, and their first reaction was going to be alarm. So part right. of the, the reason for writing Coyote America and for telling this five million year old story, this roller coaster biography of this animal in North America, was to make Americans familiar with this creature that, after all, has been here far longer than we have. It's a, if you really want to know what it's like to be a true American, you can study this animal because they've been here uh, circulating among humans for 15,000 years. So they know how to do this. We just have to figure out how to do it. And the first step, of course, is, is knowing more about them. Yeah. Um, you know, Barry Lopez, in his book on wolves, theorized that perhaps one of the, the reasons that humans have, have always felt the need to be in conflict with wolves had to do with um, the similarities between humans and wolves and the intelligence, the incredible intelligence of wolves. Because there's, there, as, as we talked to you about a little bit at the start of the show, and we can get into a little bit more, is coyotes don't pose physical danger to humans. You're far more likely to, <laughs> I don't know, die in space than get, get uh, attacked by a coyote or wolf. It's, it's just, it just doesn't happen. And so, and yet, there's this, there's all the stories, Little Red Riding Hood and, and all the, the European folk tales about uh, wolves and, and, the, and the fear that people still have these days about wolves. As, as we've talked about a lot of these amazing qualities that coyotes have, and yet they're hunted, they're, they're seen as vermin, they're, um, they're, they're shot, poisoned, uh, and, and horribly mistreated in our country. And I, wonder, I, I wondered if those two things were linked. Is, is that fear of the wolf, and perhaps if Barry Lopez is correct, um, related to the intelligence and the similarities between humans and wolves, does that same thing exist between humans and coyotes? Well, I think that correlation probably works uh, by the time you get to the 20th century. One of the interesting things about the coyote story is that after thousands of years of being regarded as a sacred animal and a deity and a figure in, in all these uh, grand stories of North America on the part of native people, Europeans show up in North America, and, I mean, we go for a couple of hundred years before, except for people who are in the Southwest, who are like in New Mexico and California, uh, no matters coyotes. The people who settle the East Coast, because coyotes don't range there, never do see coyotes until they finally cross the Mississippi River and get out to the Great Plains. The reason that's kind of important is because unlike wolves, bears, many other animals of, of sort of common European experience, coyotes didn't range in Europe. And so Europeans didn't have any preconceived notions about coyotes. And so when we began encountering them um, for Americans coming off the Atlantic coast in the early 19th century, I mean, nobody really knows exactly what to think about them. Lewis and Clark are the first to give us a description uh, out of this Atlantic American experience. When they, they are on their epic expedition out to the West in 1804, they encounter their first coyotes uh, in what is now Nebraska in the fall of 1804. And for a couple of weeks, they think they're seeing some kind of new fox. 
And then they shoot one, and they have it in the grass in front of them. And as they look at it, they realize this is not a fox. It's some kind of new wolf we've never seen before. And so they give it the name prairie wolf, which is what most Americans uh, from the Atlantic world know coyotes as for a lot of the 19th century. It's really not until the 1860s and the 1870s that the southwestern name for the animal, which is the Aztec word brought up into New Mexico by the settlers here, uh, coyote begins to penetrate into the consciousness of the United States and of Americans. And so we don't really know exactly what to think about them, but the supposition is they're close enough to wolves, they look like a sort of a junior version of a wolf, hence the term prairie wolf, that they probably carry with them the same sort of threat to human livestock uh, and to herding that people have uh, have long had with respect to wolves. And so, I mean, in this roller coaster biography of them, there's a period in the 19th century where nobody really knows what what to think about them. But nonetheless, we kill many, many thousands of them for their fur. So they become victims of the fur trade in the middle of the 19th century. Then in the 1870s, Mark Twain, in his book, Roughing It, has this remarkable four-page description of a coyote. And, I mean, as is common with Mark Twain's work, I mean, the farther he goes with it, uh, the more of a kind of a comic rant it becomes. And so he kind of sets up in Roughing It a way for Americans to think about coyotes for the first time. And it's basically that they're just breathing up good air, that they're vermin, they're scavengers, uh, there's some sort of uh, wolf on a kind of a, a skinny, uh, lanky frame, and they're really not worth anything. And for the next about 50 years, as I looked at the literature in the scientific magazines and the popular magazines, I mean, it was clear that people were almost trying to outcompete one another to make coyotes look ever more horrible. I mean, right. and, this was all before anyone had ever done any kind of scientific work on coyotes to try to figure out what role they played in the world, what they ate. I mean, we just decide by the early 20th century, we're going to wipe them out. And so a government agency, the Biological Survey, that basically wipes out wolves uh, in America, uh, especially the West, by about the 1920s, after wolves are gone and the livestock industry uh, decides that probably coyotes were the arch predator all along, the Biological Survey turns all of its attention to coyotes and they launch from about 1925 to 1972 a war of extermination. Congress actually passes an act in 1931 uh, giving this agency $10 million to exterminate coyotes from the face of North America. And they start, they primarily do it with poison or attempt to do it with poison. They start with strychnine. And when strychnine doesn't do it, during World War II, they invent three new poisons, including the famous one we now call 1080. And between 1925 and 1972, this agency, along with sort of state versions of it around the West, poisons to death, we think, more than eight and a half million coyotes in North America. Eight and, of course, and a half upshot, million. I mean, we have no real figures on how many were just shot by people because, of course, it became this. I mean, one of the stories that ran in Scientific American in 1920 was a story that encouraged Americans to shoot coyotes on sight. The idea was, according to this writer, that 
okay, coyotes are not worth the price of the ammunition required to kill them, but you should kill them anyway as a patriotic act because we all know that coyotes are the original Bolsheviks. They're the original right. communists. <laughs> so we need to kill them because they're communists and they're setting the wrong example for America. So we don't really know how many millions of these animals were killed in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. I mean, just millions upon millions of them. But the crazy part of the story was while all these other animals in North America, dating back to the 19th century, I mean, we had nearly lost bison, we lost passenger pigeons, we lost Carolina parakeets, we nearly lost pronghorns, we slaughtered three million wild horses for dog food. I mean, the story just goes on and on. Coyotes, somehow, not only don't diminish in numbers, but they spread across all of North America right in the middle of the campaign to wipe them out. And finally, in the 1960s, a couple of biologists managed to do a close enough study of coyotes to realize why this was happening. And what they realized, and this has become a staple of coyote ecology and biology ever since, is that because coyotes evolved alongside gray wolves, they long ago developed these evolutionary adaptations to survive and even thrive under harassment. And so if you leave them alone, they just rise to the carrying capacity of the local landscape, and they don't, they don't spread, they don't get it, population doesn't get any larger. But if you try to harass them and persecute them, and after wolves were gone, that's what we humans were doing, they call on these evolutionary adaptations, and the most famous one is called fission fusion. They, and basically what that means is, is that coyotes and human beings share this same evolutionary trait, by the way, we're commonly social animals. We live in groups, fusion, in other words. But whenever we're threatened or persecuted or harassed, we have the ability to split into pairs, singles, very small groups, and scatter across the landscape in order to survive. That's the fission mode, and that's one of the things that coyotes call on. I mean, there are several other things, too. They tend to have uh, get more pups to adulthood whenever the numbers are being lowered by being persecuted because there's more food available for the pups. They often will have larger litters whenever they, they're being persecuted. But these biologists concluded in this study in the early 1960s that you could wipe out 70% of the coyote population year after year after year, and it would not diminish the overall abundance of coyotes. And so this attempt to try to wipe them out ultimately spread them across North America, and rather than wiping them out, they essentially took over the very ground that we were standing on. It's no wonder that uh, Native Americans looked at these, these animals as almost magical. Exactly the story. And the truth is, once biologists began figuring this out, they began looking at coyotes as almost magical. I mean, I talked to a lot of biologists in the course of writing this book and interviewed the scientists. In fact, at, at the government agency that had killed so many of them, it's still around, by the way. Um, it's called Wildlife Services Today, and they still kill about 80,000 coyotes a year on behalf of the livestock industry primarily. But those scientists, I could tell when I talked to them, they regard coyotes as magical, too. I mean, one of their sayings in this bureau these days is a coyote will surprise you every time. Right. And so 
I mean, we're really dealing with kind of a magical animal in North American history, and it's an animal that we ought to have tremendous respect and admiration for, rather than every time we see one, try to pull out a gun and shoot it. Exactly. This is Jim O'Donnell. I'm speaking with author Dan Flores, and we're really talking a lot about coyotes. And some people call them coyotes. There's different pronunciations for this word. And Dan, why is that? There are two different pronunciations, at least. And the pronunciations are are interesting in terms of their geographic distribution. People in the Southwest and on the coasts tend to use the word coyote, uh, while people in the Midwest and the South and often in rural areas of the country uh, call the animals coyotes. And I mean, I was intrigued by that, of course. It was a, a topic that I wanted to try to run to ground in the book. And I traced it back. I traced the separation of the pronunciations back to the Taos mountain men, actually, who were here in New Mexico, of course, in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s. Um, and they were hanging around with New Mexicans who were using the term coyote. Many of these uh, these Taos mountain men who were from places like Missouri and Kentucky and Virginia originally uh, called coyotes prey wolves because of the Lewis and Clark term. But as they got out to the Southwest, they were around a population of people who referred to the animals as coyotes. And I basically tracked the simplification of that into a two-syllable word using the the books by Frederick Ruxton, who, of course, hung out with these Taos Mountain men and, gift and, and was really had an ear for language. He was really interested in dialogue. And he began rendering the word coyote sometime in his books written in the 1840s. And what I speculated about that, and I have no hard evidence for it, it's just kind of a speculation. The three-syllable word either sounded a little bit too fancy, or it maybe gave the animal in there in the mountain man's view too much credit. So they shortened it to two syllables, to coyote, and they took that pronunciation back to the South and to the Midwest and to many of the rural places in the West where they ended up settling. And so we've got this kind of interesting bifurcation of two different ways to pronounce the word. I mean, either one of them is probably fairly accurate. I mean, the original Aztec word is spelled C-O-Y-O-T-L, and you would think it would be pronounced coyotl which would be a three-syllable enunciation of it. But in the Nahuatl language, the Aztec language, that L on the end is actually silent. So these these mountain men may have heard uh, speakers of the Nahuatl language in New Mexico saying coyote as a two-syllable pronunciation. Either one of them is good. Mark Twain is the one in, in Roughing It who told Americans that the correct pronunciation was coyote as a three-syllable. So we've ended up as I said, in parts of the country with that as the primary pronunciation of the animal's name. And it's not just regional, by my experience. I, I've noticed that, that there's also a political division in how, that, uh, how this word is spoken. And this is just anecdotal. I don't have any research on it, but I've just noticed this over the years. Even in some of the rural areas of New Mexico and Colorado, among, um, I would say, more politically conservative ranchers, livestock people, they 
you oftentimes do hear coyote, where otherwise you might hear coyote, even within our region. And I wonder if there's something with that also. Well, I mean, yeah, I do write about this in the introduction to the book, um, because I've had uh, experiences myself with uh, how the word is pronounced, sort of identifying a difference in political persuasion. Uh, And I think I can sum it up by what one of my friends told me when we were having a discussion about this on his podcast. He said, well, you know, nobody who shoots one ever calls it a coyote. If you shoot it, trap it, or poison it, it's a coyote. I think that in some ways kind of summarizes the, the political difference. The people who tend to admire the animals and think they're uh, they're worthy of reading about and learning about tend to say coyote. The people who think that they're only good for shooting uh, tend to say coyote. So, I mean, it's not a hard and fast rule because I know biologists who grew up in the West who say coyote as well, but it's kind of a generalization that works most of the time. That's interesting. One of the other things I've noticed, you know, out in out in the rural West is that you'll often see coyote pelts hanging from fences uh, or just basically the carcass of coyotes hanging from fences um, along oh, yeah. roadways and uh, people have shot and shot and killed them. And, and, and you, you brought up the fact that there was just this massive eradication effort that went on for decades and decades against the coyote. One thing we didn't dive into was, was, was the question of, is, is there any science that backs up the idea that coyotes are damaging livestock? Well, I mean, coyotes certainly prey on sheep. There's no question. I mean, they're not, they've never really been considered, even by ranchers, much of a threat to cattle. I mean, there's an occasional story of a newborn calf uh, being taken down by coyotes. But, I mean, the concern in a lot of the early 20th century had to do with sheep as we began uh, introducing domesticated sheep, of course, which had been bred free of all of their instincts to avoid predators. I mean, they became sort of sitting ducks for coyotes. And so sheep certainly became a target among livestock in America of coyote depredations. There's no question about that. The issue, however, is that, I mean, certainly there's still plenty of sheep herders in New Mexico and the Southwest. But at the time when we were really waging the war of extermination against coyotes because of their depredations on sheep, and we thought at the time on all kinds of wild animals, and the science for that certainly turned out to be erroneous. But at the time when this was going on in the 30s and 40s, at its height, there were something like 50 million sheep in North America. Today, there are fewer than 5 million sheep, and so the sheep industry has shrunk by a factor of magnitude in the last 75 years, but somehow we still carry on this same war of attrition against coyotes. And what's interesting uh, to me when I talked to the scientists at Wildlife Services about this was that they knew very well that this war against coyotes that they were still waging actually did no good at all. It did not relieve depredations in the sheep industry whatsoever. But what they told me was people in the livestock industry are used to us doing this. They want us to do something. And so even though we know it doesn't do any good, as long as we do something and that something being kill them, kill the coyotes, these livestock people are satisfied. I mean, 
Of course, what many of the activists on behalf of coyotes are arguing for is some very effective non-lethal control methods that work outstandingly well where they've been tried. But What's an example of the that? Result, well, I mean, the example, for example, of using guard dogs and of bringing the, the herds in to an enclosure at night and using what's called flattery, which is fencing that has flags waving from it to dissuade coyotes. I mean, there are seven or eight different techniques that have been used as non-lethal control methods, but it seems to be, according to the discussions I had with the scientists at Wildlife Services, that what most people in the livestock industry want to continue to happen is for the animals to be killed, even though the scientists certainly know, and probably some of the people in the industry realize it as well, this actually does no good. It's like rolling a rock up a hill and having it roll back down on your head over and over and over and over again. You just, I mean, so it's an act, as I say in Coyote America, this is an act of ideology. It's not an act right. of being smart about what you're learning about the world. It's just an ideological act. I do this because I believe in it and I don't care what the facts are. I'm going to do it anyway. So we kill 80,000 coyotes a year, approximately, for no reason and counter to science. And meanwhile, that act of killing 80,000 coyotes a year may drive their evolutionary adapted abilities for them to further expand their range. That's just a fascinating... Well, yeah, it's, 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 it's in some ways, you know, kind of classic American craziness, really. I mean, and it, it goes back to, you know, we, we pass a law to try to exterminate them from North America in 1931 before we ever send any scientists out to do any studies on them. And when... They go out in the late 1930s, the Murray brothers, Adolph and Olas in particular, study coyotes in Yellowstone and in Grand Tetons Park. And what they conclude from the first scientific studies ever done is, wow, you know, they don't really have any impact on game animals because these game animals have long ago co-evolved adaptations to coyotes. So they don't have any kind of effect at all on game animals. And it turns out primarily what they eat are rodents and rabbits. And so, as these scientists argued, 85% of the effect that coyotes have on human economics is a favorable effect. Interesting. Regardless of the science. I mean, we've been there many times and we're there now where the science is just inconvenient to believe if you have an ideological opinion about something. So, I'm just not going to believe the science. I'm just going to go ahead and do what I want to do. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that is a, that is a, that's all, not quite uniquely American, but it's a very American habit. And we see it right now with climate change. That's right. Yeah, we do. Indeed. Yeah. Um, Dan, just in the few minutes that we have left, uh, you know, we've been talking about coyotes all this time, but you've also got this other great book out there, American Serengeti. You just mentioned how long ago the wildlife of North America adapted with and adapted to the coyote. Let's talk just a little bit for the last few minutes about that ecosystem that existed at the time that these adaptations were taking place. Give us just a, a, a picture of what North America, specifically the Great Plains, looked like before Europeans arrived. Well, American Serengeti is a book about the American Great Plains. Uh, and as the title implies, uh, what I argue from a pretty close examination of 
sort of the long-term history of the Great Plains. It was our North American version of the African Serengeti. I mean, up until the Pleistocene extinction, there were even elephants. Uh, there were there were there was an American lion. There were cheetahs. There were many of the creatures that you would think of as being purely African that were also in North America. Now, during the extinctions, we lost uh, those that I just mentioned, but the American Serengeti reconstituted over the last 10,000 years of history around a suite of animals that included of course, bison, which multiplied into the millions to fill the lost niches of some of the animals that went away during the Pleistocene, pronghorns that probably increased to our North American gazelles that increased to a population of as many as 15 million animals, bison probably to as many as 30 million during times of, of good weather. We had predators like gray wolves that were the keystone dominant predator on the Great Plains, gray wolves probably numbered as many as a half million animals uh, on the Great Plains. We had as well, the Great Plains was actually the home range of the grizzly bear. I mean, we think of grizzlies as being mountain animals today, but that's because they were driven into the mountains. They were originally out on the Great Plains because of all the largesse that was provided by uh, the huge herds of animals that were there. So grizzlies were kind of the equivalent of the African lion, the sort of godlike creature uh, that was found on the Great Plains. And then, interestingly enough, I mean, we had, of course, bighorn sheep that were found in the Badlands, and elk were also animals of the Great Plains rather than the mountains. Interestingly enough, too, because horses, as I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, had evolved in North America before spreading their populations around to the rest of the world to become zebras and wild horses and wild asses in Asia and in Europe. North American horses had gone extinct for some reason we still don't understand during the Pleistocene extinction. But when we brought them back to North America 500 years ago, and particularly when they got loose as a result of the Pueblo Revolt of 1680, which liberated to the Pueblo Indians all these horse herds that the Spaniards had in Santa Fe and Taos. Some of those animals got loose in the Pueblo Revolt and spread out to the plains. Others were traded to peoples up the Rockies to produce the horse-mounted buffalo-hunting Indians of the 18th and 19th centuries. But those horses that got loose quickly, because they were pre-adapted to the Great Plains from more than 50 million years of evolution here, they quickly became native and reoccupied their old niche on the Great Plains. So by the time it all was over, at the end of the 1900s, we think there were probably as many as three million wild horses roaming in stallion bands up and down the Great Plains. So it was, um, I mean, when I began looking at the accounts of the people who saw this firsthand, I realized what a world-class phenomenon it was, because so many people coming out of the eastern seaboard and even from Europe, uh, because the Great Plains became a destination for European hunters just as Africa did. I mean, they just absolutely marveled at the abundance of wildlife. I include a lot of those quotes in my book, American Serengeti, starting out with one by John James Audubon, the American naturalist and painter, who was just absolutely gobsmacked. I mean, he wrote from the Missouri River in 1843 to his wife. He said, I'm so excited, I can't write anymore. I've never seen anything like the abundance and diversity of animals that are around me. In less than a century's time, I think, I argue from about 1820 
to about 1920. We Americans managed to wipe out most of these animals in what is, as far as I was able to discover, the largest single destruction of wildlife discoverable in world history. I mean, we wiped virtually all of those animals out in the space of about 100 years. And while Africa ends up establishing the colonial powers in Africa, uh, established these great game parks like the Serengeti Park and the Maasai National Reserve and Kruger National Park in South Africa and many more. I mean, we end up without anything like that on the Great Plains and nearly lose most of these animals. In fact, we lose some of them altogether. Right. So one of the things that American Serengeti is about at, at its conclusion is about this organization called the American Prairie Reserve in Montana that's trying to recreate the American Serengeti. They're trying to recreate a park that will be twice the size of Yellowstone and reintroduce all these animals, the grizzlies, the wolves, the elk, uh, pronghorns, bison, and everything, so that we have this, what was once this world-class bestiary restored in North America. Fantastic. Dan, unfortunately, we got to leave it there. I would like to dive in deeper on that, but um, we're going to have to leave it. So Dan's been talking about his book, American Serengeti, the other book that we focused on today was Coyote America. I encourage folks to go out and, and pick up these books because they're fantastic. Um, look up Dan Flores. Um, he's got a, a, a lot of fantastic work about the history of the American West out there. Um, that's, that's just wonderful. And, and Dan, thank you for all your excellent work, and, um, and thank you for joining me this morning. Oh, you bet, Jim. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to the Taos Land Trust Podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded by Jim O'Donnell at the studios of KNCE 93.5 FM in Taos, New Mexico. Edited by Brett Tomadin. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit www.taoslandtrust.org. This is Jim O'Donnell for the Taos Land Trust. Thank you for joining us.